Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. My name is Lee Nichols. I'm the Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief of Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine. On this episode of The Main Column podcast, we're looking at the very last installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's History of the HPI. So this one focuses on the 2000s. And it's going to go through various topics such as net zero, environmental regulations, capacity acceleration, and digital transformation. So over the past 170 years, refining and petrochemical production has evolved immensely. It's not only in the sheer size of plants, but also in the technologies that enable them to operate efficiently and safely. Now, since 2000, new regulations and technological discoveries have advanced the industry even further, and this has led to hundreds of billions of dollars being invested in new production capacity, as well as on things like new digital technologies to enhance production, safety, training, operations, and supply chains. Now, this final installment of the History of the HPI series is going to detail some of the major events in the refining and petrochemicals industry over the past 20-plus years, This includes things like stricter regulations and initiatives to curb carbon emissions, a safer and more environmentally friendly way to produce and handle chemicals, significant capital investments to boost production capacity, as well as the industry's digital transformation. So let's first now look at the environmental issues that accelerated clean fuels production and chemical operations. So since the 1970s, a prevailing trend within the HPI has been the constant pursuit of reducing sulfur content in transportation fuels to produce a higher quality product. In turn, new technologies and regulations have led to a reduction in emissions in many parts of the world. This trend will continue for the next 50 years as governments seek to reduce carbon emissions from the industry. Now, over the past 30 years, stricter emission standards have been enhanced in many nations around the world. These standards arose from the U.S. tiered standards. So so for the U.S. tiered standards, you have tier 1, 2, 3, and of course the European standards, which are Euro 1 through 6, and these evolved in the early 1990s and 2000s. So these standards originated from research conducted on limiting smog in major cities in the U.S. and Western Europe, primarily in France and Germany. The implementation of European emission standards in the early 1990s and 2000s would eventually become a global standard for many countries to adhere to new clean fuels regulations. So, for example, many nations now adopt European fuels specifications for domestically produced fuels. Examples of those might be Broad Stage 6 in India, China 6 in China, etc. Now, the adoption of higher quality fuel specifications does not come without a price. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent over the past several decades to build new secondary unit capacity additions to both remove sulfur from crude oil and boost octane levels of fuels. Now, this trend continues today as many nations strive to produce low sulfur and ultra-low sulfur transportation fuels. Many countries have invested in new units to produce higher quality fuels, as well as increased mandatory biocontent blending rates, so in other words, biofuels, and of course, the production of renewable fuels. Now, let's switch focus here and look at some of the chemical regulations. So we have the responsible care and reach, which are adopted. So strict regulations transform the chemical industry as well. In the 2000s, new initiatives and regulations on the production and usage of chemicals, along with their impact on human health and the environment, became paramount. Now, this was particularly happening in Europe, but it was also being uh, used in other producing countries. So, for example, the Responsible Care Initiative was established to improve the performance and the environmental awareness of the global chemical industry. 
So this initiative was launched by the Chemistry Industry Association of Canada in 1985. The program evolved over the next two decades, culminating in the launch of the Responsible Care Global Charter at the United Nations-led International Conference on Chemicals Management in Dubai in 2006. The charter is a voluntary commitment to safe chemicals management, performance, and handling to protect both the public and the environment. Now, according to the International Council of Chemical Associations, the global charter consists of the following six elements. One, a corporate leadership culture that proactively supports safe chemicals management through the Global Responsible Care Initiative. Number two, safeguarding people and the environment by continuously improving the environmental health and safety performance and security of chemical facilities, processes, and technologies. Number three, strengthening chemicals management systems by participating in the development and implementation of life cycle oriented science and risk-based chemical safety legislation and best practices. Number four, influencing business partners to promote the safe management of chemicals within plant operations. Number five, engaging stakeholders, understanding and responding to their concerns and expectations for safer operations and products and communicating openly on performance and production. And finally, number six, contributing to sustainability through improved performance, expanded economic opportunities, and the development of innovative technologies and other solutions to societal challenges. Now today, the Responsible Care Initiative is practiced in nearly 70 countries, representing nearly 90% of global chemical production. Now approximately one year after the launch of the Responsible Care Global Charter, the European Union, or EU, adopted one of the most comprehensive and strictest laws within the chemical industry. That was called EC 1907-2006. The EU regulation, known as the Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals, or REACH, was put in place to protect human health and the environment from the risk posed by chemicals, as well as promote alternative methods for the hazard assessment of substances to reduce the number of tests on animals. Now, the regulation also created the European Chemicals Agency, or the ECHA, which manages the technical and administrative aspects of REACH. Companies that manufacture chemicals in the EU or import chemicals into the region of at least one ton per year must register the chemicals with the ECHA. Now, according to the agency, REACH applies to all chemical substances. So that doesn't matter if it's an industrial process or a chemical that's used in the daily lives of European citizens. So for example, cleaning supplies. Now, companies must identify and manage the risk linked to their chemicals manufactured or used within the EU. If the risk cannot be managed, authorities can restrict the use of substances within the region. Now, at the time of this podcast, the ECHA has collected more than 23,000 valid REACH registrations from nearly 16,100 companies. All right, now let's turn our sights to the Paris Agreement. So over the past 30 years, many nations have enacted new regulations and initiatives to limit carbon emissions. And of course, one of the first major global initiatives to limit greenhouse gas emissions, or GHG emissions, was the Kyoto Protocol, which was established by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That was adopted in late 1997. And the treaty's primary goal was to limit GHG emissions, which are carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, hydrofluorocarbons, perfluorocarbons, sulfur hexafluoride, and nitrogen trifluoride in 37 industrialized countries, economies in transition, and the EU. 
So the Kyoto Protocol comprised of two commitment periods. The first commitment period was 2008 to 2012, and that called for participating countries to reduce emissions by 5% versus 1990 levels. Now, there was a Doha amendment to the Kyoto Protocol in 2012, and that ushered in the second commitment period, which ran from 2013 to 2020. That amendment was signed at the 18th Conference of the Parties, or COP18, in Doha, Qatar. Within this period, the participating countries committed to reduce GHG emissions by at least 18% versus 1990 levels. Now, the Kyoto Protocol was a precursor to the Paris Agreement. Adopted in 2015 and entered into force in late 2016 at the UN Climate Change Conference, which was referred to as COP21, and that was held in Paris, France. Now, the Paris Agreement called for nations around the world to curb emissions to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius versus pre-industrial levels. Now, this agreement would usher in a new era of environmental awareness and energy production as countries and industries strive for net zero economies and operations. Now, at the time of this podcast, more than 190 parties have signed the treaty to join the Paris Agreement. Now, to adhere to the provisions within the Paris Agreement, several countries are dramatically transforming domestic energy generation capabilities and are looking to zero carbon pathways to power their economies. The EU has been a champion for reduced emissions. Prior to the Paris Agreement, the EU had already enacted the Renewable Energy Directive, or RED, in 2009. That required 20% of the energy consumed in the EU to be renewable. Following the Paris Agreement, the EU revised the RED initiative by increasing required renewables usage in the bloc to 32% by 2030. This initiative was called RED 2. Now, the European Commission, or the EC, proposed a revision to RED2 in July of 2021 that actually called for increasing renewable requirements to 40% by 2030. So within the EC's Repower EU plan, which was published in May of this year, renewable requirements could reach as high as 45% by 2030. Now the Repower EU initiative calls for the EU to completely wean off the use of Russian natural gas supplies. And of course, that's a direct effect of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine in early 2022. Now, the increased usage of renewables stems from the EU's Green New Deal. Approved in 2020, the ambitious initiative's goal is to make Europe the first climate-neutral continent by 2050. The policies put forth in the Green New Deal call for the reduction of net GHG emissions by at least 55% by 2030 versus 1990 levels. Now, this initiative is expected to cost more than 1 trillion euros. Several of the policies put forth in the Green New Deal include decarbonizing the mobility sector. So, for example, starting in 2035, only zero carbon dioxide emitting new cars can be sold in the EU. Other aspects are building a hydrogen economy for net zero power generation, using alternative fuels to power shipping, rail and mass transit, and incorporating a significant amount of renewables capacity within the region. Now, the Paris Agreement has also inspired many other nations to invest in reducing carbon emissions within their economies. These initiatives included the use of renewable fuels, an increase in the production slash blending rates of biofuels, utilizing low-carbon emitting fuels in the marine sector. So, for example, the IMO's Global Sulfur Cap Regulation, which was enacted in January of 2020, and that required marine vessels to reduce their sulfur content of their fuels from 3.5% to 0.5%, which affected more than 50,000 ships worldwide. 
Other areas are increased adoption of electric and hybrid electric vehicles, a shift to a hydrogen economy, and capital-intensive investments in carbon capture and storage and carbon capture, storage, and utilization projects, among many other aspects. So now we're going to look at capacity acceleration, rise of the East, Middle East diversification, and U.S. shale. So over the past 30 years, HPI capacity additions have significantly increased in Asia, the Middle East, and the United States. Now this surge in processing capacity has equated to significant investments in new refining and petrochemical plants, expansions, grassroots facilities, and gas processing and LNG infrastructure. So let's first look at Asia. Now over the past 20 years, more than 1 billion people in Asia have moved into higher socioeconomic classes. So for an example, in 2000, less than 1 billion people in Asia were considered part of the consumer class. In other words, those that spend more than $11 per day. And by 2020, that number increased to 2 billion. And forecasts show that Asia's middle class could reach more than 3 billion by 2030. So since 2000, several Asian nations have witnessed a surge in industrial activity, and that's led to a steady growth in domestic economies. And as many Asian nations' economies grew, surging demand for refined fuels, petrochemical products, and natural gas has led to a flood of capital investments in new processing capacity. So from 2000 to 2021, Oil consumption in Asia skyrocketed more than 12.6 million barrels per day to reaching 34 million barrels per day. And of course, that's according to BP's Statistical Review of World Energy. In response, the region has added nearly 15 million barrels per day of refining capacity. China alone has added more than 10.7 million barrels per day within that same time frame. Now, much of this capacity additions adhere to European fuel specifications. So, in other words, Euro 3, Euro 4, and 5. Now, to produce ultra-low sulfur fuels, Asian producers have built some of the most complex refining networks in the world. And along with increased demand for transportation fuels, Asia's thirst for petrochemicals and natural gas have expanded exponentially. The region's natural gas consumption has nearly tripled to more than 860 billion cubic meters per year since 2000. Consumption of petrochemicals in Asia has increased by tens of millions of tons per year as more individuals move up socioeconomic classes and demand more products comprised of thermoplastics. In turn, Asia has invested hundreds of billions of dollars in new petrochemical capacity additions over the past 20 years. Now, these investments include things like grassroots facilities, expansions, upgrades, mega integrated complexes, and the installation of new petrochemical plants into existing refining operations. Now, to help decarbonize economies, many Asian nations have invested in new natural gas infrastructure over the past decade. So just an example of this, several Asian countries have converted coal-fired power plants to use natural gas instead. However, many Asian nations must import natural gas supplies to use as feedstock for power generation. In turn, the region has built tens of millions of tons per year in new LNG import infrastructure and tens of thousands of miles of natural gas pipelines. These capital-intensive natural gas and LNG infrastructure build-outs continue to this day. Moving west to the Middle East. Now, the Middle East has changed drastically since oil was first discovered in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, in 1908. Approximately four years later, in 1912, the region's first refinery was built by the Anglo-Persian Oil Company in Abadan. APOC, or Anglo-Persian Oil Company, would later adopt the name BP after the British became the major shareholder within the company. Now, more than 100 years later, 
The Middle East has not only become a major oil producing and exporting region, but it's also invested heavily in the production of transportation fuels, petrochemical products, and natural gas. Major regional investments in hydrocarbon processing plants accelerated in the 2010s, primarily due to the dramatic volatility in crude oil pricing. Now, in 2012, global crude oil prices skyrocketed to more than $120 per barrel due to an improving global economy, increased oil demand, oil speculation, and sanctions on Iran. Now, Western nations sanctioned Iran due to the country's pursuit of a nuclear program. These sanctions had the potential to knock more than 2 million barrels per day of Iranian oil exports off the market and lead Iran to retaliate by closing the Strait of Hormoz, a narrow waterway between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Amman, which approximately one-third of waterborne oil shipments pass through the Strait daily. However, the forecasted oil consumption never materialized, and prices took a freefall. So from 2014 to 2016, global oil prices fell from $120 per barrel to less than $30 per barrel. That significant decline in oil prices severely dented Middle Eastern oil revenues, which is the primary source of the region's economies. So although several capital-intensive projects had been announced in the region prior to the oil price plunge, so example of these are aromatics and methanol plants in Oman, Barouge 2 construction was going on in the UAE, and there were some major projects by NatPet, Petrarabig, Satorp, and Sidera in Saudi Arabia. Now, nearly all Middle Eastern countries announced major capital investments in new hydrocarbon processing capacity to both mitigate the reliance on oil export revenues and diversify their product portfolios. So these investments focused on things like grassroots refining and petrochemical facilities, clean fuels production, integrated complexes, and natural gas infrastructure. So things like gas processing plants, LNG terminals, and natural gas pipelines. Now, for example... The following are some of the major investment commitments, with many of these capital programs continued into the mid and the late 2020s. So these are ones that are various projects that were in the Middle Eastern nations since the mid-2010s. So Kuwait has invested more than $30 billion on its clean fuels project in the 615,000 barrel per day Al-Zawar refinery to become the region's leader in clean fuels production. Oman invested and continues to invest more than $15 billion to boost processing infrastructure. Saudi Arabia has and continues to invest tens of billions of dollars in refining and petrochemical capacity additions as part of the country's Vision 2030 initiative. Qatar's investing $30 billion to increase domestic LNG liquefaction capacity. They're raising their domestic capacity from 77 million tons per year to more than 125 million tons per year by 2027. The UAE continues to invest billions of dollars to expand domestic refining capacity and triple its petrochemical production capacity as part of Abu Dhabi's National Oil Company's 2030 strategy. Bahrain continues to invest billions of dollars to expand and modernize its refining industry. And Iran, despite years of sanctions, has and continues to invest heavily in increasing domestic refining and petrochemicals capacity. Now, these investments have not only created millions of jobs within the region, but have also provided Middle Eastern nations with new high-quality products for export to the global market, providing tens of billions of dollars in trade revenues. So now we're going to look at U.S. shale and how it's transformed the U.S. processing landscape. Now, one of the most impactful events in the history of the United States hydrocarbon processing landscape was the discovery of hydraulic fracturing, or what you know as fracking. Now, although the technology came into prominence in the 2000s, the history of fracking dates back to the 1860s. 
So during the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia in the United States, Civil War Colonel Edward A.L. Roberts noticed how exploding Confederate artillery rounds affected a narrow canal on the battlefield. So this observation was the genesis of the technique Roberts called superincumbent fluid tamping. According to literature, superincumbent fluid tamping is when water dampens an explosion, preventing any debris from blowing back up the well hole, thus amplifying its effects. So this technique spawned Roberts' invention of the exploding torpedo, which he believed could be used in the burgeoning oil production industry. The exploding torpedo was an explosive device that would fracture the surrounding rock at the bottom of an oil well to stimulate flow. The torpedo was an iron case filled with 15 to 20 pounds of gunpowder. It was lowered to the bottom of an oil well and detonated via a wire running from the shell to the surface. The explosion filled the borehole with water, i.e. fluid tamping, which concentrated the explosion, providing a more efficient fracture of surrounding rock. After several successful tests, Roberts patented his exploding torpedo in 1866, eventually switching from gunpowder to nitroglycerin. Now, modern-day hydraulic fracturing began in the 1940s with experiments conducted by Floyd Ferris of Standard Oil and Gas Company. These experiments included injecting 1,000 gallons of gelled gasoline and sand into gas-producing limestone in the Hugoton gas field in southwest Kansas in the United States. Now, this was in followed by injecting a gel breaker to stimulate the well. Although the tests were not actually successful in significantly increasing well production, it did mark the beginning of modern-day fracking. In 1949, Halliburton Oil Well Cementing Company, or what's known as Halliburton today, began its own fracking experiments in Oklahoma and Texas, which were much more successful. And over the next 30 years, fracking grew in prominence in the United States, in the 1980s and the 1990s, George P. Mitchell incorporated a new technique in oil production that combined hydraulic fracking with horizontal drilling. So this technique also used slick water, which is a combination of water, chemicals, and sand that could increase the pressure in the rock formation. Mitchell's company, which was called Mitchell Energy and Development Corporation, conducted several successful experiments in the Barnett Shale Formation in Texas, which spread into other shale basins in Arkansas, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and states in the Rocky Mountain region, thus launching the modern-day shale revolution. And by 2020, fracking enabled U.S. producers to significantly expand domestic oil and natural gas production. The nation's oil production increased from approximately 7 million barrels per day in the early 1990s to more than 12 million barrels per day, with natural gas production nearly doubling to more than 1.1 billion cubic meters per year within that same time frame. Now, the proven success of fracking propelled the United States to the forefront of global oil and natural gas supplies and had dramatic impacts on the region's hydrocarbon processing capacity. Now, prior to the 2010s, the U.S. was a major importer of natural gas, with many investors eager to build these large-scale LNG import terminals. However, all of that changed post-2010, as U.S. natural gas production surged because of wide-scale fracking, the nation had this huge abundance of natural gas supplies. And to monetize this commodity, public and private companies invested a significant amount of capital to build gas processing plants, natural gas pipeline infrastructure, and grassroots LNG export terminals, or converting existing LNG import facilities to export operations. And by the early 2020s, Operable U.S. LNG export capacity eclipsed 80 million tons per year, 
with additional liquefaction trains under development that will increase total U.S. LNG export capacity to more than 100 million tons per year by the mid-2020s. So within a decade, shale gas production had enabled the United States to reverse course from importing vast amounts of natural gas to being one of the largest natural gas exporters in the world. Shale gas fracking also revitalized the country's petrochemical sector. Cheap, readily available shale gas feedstock, in other words, ethane, enabled the country to become one of the world's lowest cost ethylene producers. Now, ethylene, of course, is the key building block for the petrochemical industry, and it supports 70% of petrochemical industry production and is used to manufacture a wide variety of products for industrial and consumer markets. In turn, more than 11 million tons per year of ethylene production units began operation from 2016 to 2020 within the United States, and an additional 5 million tons per year is set to start production by the mid-2020s. So this wave of investments in ethane cracking facilities spurred tens of billions of dollars in capital investments in ethylene derivatives and specialty chemicals production capacity, as well as other things like ammonia, urea, and methanol production plants. The increased production of chemicals and petrochemicals also had profound effects on the nation's chemical trade, increasing chemical export revenues from $227 billion in 2015 to more than $243 billion by 2020. Now, we're going to look lastly at the digital transformation that's happened in the hydrocarbon processing industry. Now, the HPI's digital prowess has dramatically evolved since the first direct digital control computer was installed in a refinery. That was actually the Thomson Rama Woodridge 300 computer, and that was incorporated at Texaco's 1,600 barrel per day polymerization unit at its Port Arthur refinery in Texas in 1959. That event marked the beginning of the computer integrated manufacturing era of the HPI. Now, the 1950s also witnessed the beginning of computer aided design, or CAD, in the advent of research into artificial intelligence, or what we've known as AI. CAD was coined by Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor Douglas Ross, who is known as the father of automatically programmed tools, the language that drives numerical control in manufacturing. Now, this technology would evolve and heavily influence advanced engineering and design software for hydrocarbon processing plants and complexes within the following decades, and it enabled plant design, engineering, and construction companies to create advanced models and drawings. When we look at AI, the field of AI research began in 1956 with the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence, which was held by John McCarthy in Hanover, New Hampshire in the United States. It was a two-month brainstorming session and included approximately 20 participants that discussed various topics such as neural networks, computers, computational theory, and natural language processing, among other topics. Now, several of these topics were influenced by theories and concepts put forth by English mathematician and computer scientist Alan Turing within his paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. So his creation of the Turing machine demonstrated that concepts of algorithms and computation, which is why he's considered to be the father of theoretical computer science and AI. Now, over the next 20 years, research into AI flourished, with heavy funding being poured into the technology by entities such as British and U.S. governments. However, research did slow in the late 1970s, and then the funding ran dry. This period was actually known as the AI winter. Now, in the 1960s, the invention of the Programmable Logic Controller, or PLC, by Bedford Associates, 
that company is now part of Schneider Electric, meant that large banks of relays could be replaced by a single device. PLCs were incorporated into plant operations in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. Now, during the late 1960s, French engineer Pierre Bizet created the first 3D CAD computer-aided manufacturing program while working at the French automobile maker Renault. His invention, which was called the Unisurf CAD system, enabled the design of vehicles to move from drawing boards to CAD. This technology would evolve over time and create different approaches to 3D, or surface modeling and object modeling. During this time frame, computer-generated environments that responded to the users started to take shape as well. Myron Kruger coined this type of technology system, artificial reality. In the 1970s, the creation of the distributed control system by Yokogawa in Japan and Honeywell in the United States revolutionized refinery and petrochemical plant operations. So this technology moved process controls from board operations, so in other words, those large instrument panels that house controllers, to a computerized control system, and that enabled full automation of plant operation. Process automation continued to evolve over the next several decades, including the development of field bus, Ethernet-based networks, virtual reality, or VR, wireless systems and protocols, increased cyber defenses, remote transmission, and many other advances to optimize plant operations. For example, the invention of the Internet enabled computers and companies to take advantage of cloud computing. Now, the advances in computing technology, AI, VR, augmented reality, or AR, and other dynamic digital technologies culminated in the age of digital transformation of the 2010s. This is referred to as Industry 4.0 or the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Now, this era is revolutionizing the way companies do business by using digital technologies to build and run more efficient and smarter operations and supply chains. Within the processing industry, the age of digital transformation has provided refiners and petrochemical producers with new digital technologies. So the Internet of Things, digital twins, cloud computing, smart sensors and networks, AI, VR, AR, predictive advanced analytics, drones, blockchain, and other devices of hardware and software. Now, these have enhanced production, automation, supply chains, maintenance, training, safety, and profitability. So with that, we conclude our 100-year-plus history of the hydrocarbon processing industry. So this series has detailed the major events, people, and technological advancements in the global refining and petrochemical industries over the past 170 years. From the discovery of kerosene as a lamp-burning fuel in the mid-1800s, to the complex processes used today to produce transportation fuels, thermoplastics, fertilizers, and many other products used by billions of people daily, this robust analysis has chronicled the evolution of the global HPI. So this anthology has highlighted the origins of refining, the genesis of synthetic plastics and oils, the creation of the internal combustion engine and jet engine, thermal and catalytic cracking, different types of polyethylene and resins, new catalyst technologies such as Ziegler Nata and rocket fuel, how war necessitated advancing technologies such as 100-octane aviation gasoline, synthetic rubber and silicones, the era of computer-integrated manufacturing, the creation and advancement of the distributed control system, the PLC, field bus, and Ethernet, multiple oil crises, a significant increase in clean fuels, emissions reductions, and safety regulations globally, liquid crystals and conducting polymers, digital transformation, and new tools, processes, and technologies to optimize maintenance, plant design and engineering and construction, training, management, and operations. 
Lastly, this series has been a testament to the ingenuity of people from around the world that have contributed to the evolution of societies through discovery and creation. Now, these advancements have increased the standard of living for billions of people around the world for more than a century. Now, unless we tell their stories and discoveries, most of this is just going to be lost to history. Instead, these stories and accomplishments should be celebrated in hopes of inspiring new generations of innovators, risk-takers, creators, and developers to be pioneers for new technologies, processes, and inventions to the betterment of humanity. Again, we want to thank you for listening to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column.